because if you don't share your voice, no one will ever hear you. And if you don't share your true voice, no one will ever know you. But in these urgent and very difficult times, uh, there's never been a greater draw to have people actually speak their true self. Welcome to the Ignited Recovery Podcast, a new way forward for anyone looking for answers but feeling left out. If you've been searching for empowerment, triumph, and purpose, you've found them right here. You won't hear the same solutions and you're not going to have any excuses to fall back on because Ignited Recovery allows heroes to rise and become their best selves. I'm Dr. Adi Jaffe and I can't wait to be your guide on this journey. Are you ready to become an Ignited Hero? All right, everybody, welcome back to our interview section. This is uh, this is one of my favorite parts where we bring you incredible experts with a message that's, you know, connected to, relevant for, and aligned with Ignited, but unique to them. And Dr. Fred Moss is exactly one of those people. Um, he titles himself a non-diagnosing psychiatrist, and you know how big we are on the power of labels here. So I'm really excited about that part of things. Uh, he's also served in the mental health industry for nearly four decades and has done that in the context of consulting with patients, practitioners, physicians, facilities, organizations, groups, hospitals, nursing homes, shelters, drugs, uh, uh, drug rehab facilities, jail prisons, and so much more. Um, and he really, you know, his whole thing is to use conversation, communication, and your voice, uh, along with creativity and a deep human connection as a tool to help people undiagnose, unmedicate, and then get away from needing their doctor. So, Dr. Fred, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So much of what I just um, mentioned about you is aligned with the way we do things at Ignited, but I want you to tell our listeners what brought you into this, right? As a psychiatrist and, and things of that nature, I'm sure your training was very different than where you ended up. Walk us through how that happened. Yeah, I know. It's actually very similar. I'm finally back to where I meant to be when I got started. Uh, so uh, you know, I was born uh, as a communicator. I was born to bring pleasure, joy, and connection to the people that around me. In fact, I was born into a family that was in a fair amount of chaos and disarray. So uh, on arrival, little Freddie was supposed to bring a bundle of joy to them and give them a reason to be and a reason to enjoy because their life had kind of fallen apart. I had uh, two brothers, <clears throat> 10 and 14 years older than me, and my parents who weren't getting along that well, apparently. And so my job was to connect them and to create with them and to communicate with them. And so I've been doing this as a full-time job since the first second that I arrived. I was really enchanted with the whole idea of communication. And I thought that I would learn how to be a master communicator in the conventional educational system. But as you can guess, that didn't happen so easily in elementary school and then a little worse in junior high and then even a little worse in high school and frankly, even a little worse in college. So I dropped out of college after a year and a half of looking to, I thought I was going to learn how to communicate, but the communication I was learning was more in the community rather than in the conventional educational system. I did what any self-respecting person does when they drop out of college in, in 1978, and that is I boarded a Greyhound bus and I went over to Berkeley, California, so I could figure out you know what my life was about. I spent the summer there in a youth hostel. And I got some access to what my life was about, but I didn't have a job or anything. So my mom asked me to come on back and get a job, you know, get or sorry, get a degree and then go find out what my life was about after that. So 
I returned back to the University of Michigan and tried one more time, only to be uh, immediately disappointed again. Uh, I took on computers at the only computer that existed in all of the state of Michigan, uh, which was on the campus of University of Michigan. And it was uh, punch cards, you know, from here to there and 24-7 building, two-acre facility. And uh, that wasn't going to work for me for a career either, so I dropped out again. Now, here's where my mental health career actually starts, because my mom, again, promised, said that I had to get a job. And she got me an application for uh, uh, becoming a child care worker at a state mental health facility in Pontiac, Michigan. So there, after orientation, I really saw that these children were really weren't very much children. They were just six or seven years younger than me, human beings, walking through life and trying to figure out how to make sense of it were uh, so-called my clients or my patients or uh, my residents. And in communicating with them, I got to learn again, that which I already know is that all healing comes from resonating and connection with another person. And now I was getting paid to communicate, and I really loved that part of the job. The thing I hated the most was the way psychiatry was treating those kids. See, we would call the psychiatrist, you know, and say Timmy's up too late or Johnny and Jimmy had gotten in a fight. And a psychiatrist would come down from his call room and maybe interview Timmy for about three seconds and then interview us for like maybe seven seconds and then go into the nursing office. Uh, with uh, one of these uh, things called a weapon, I mean, I'm sorry, a pen, and they would write something into the chart, and then we would have to take Jimmy down inside of the quiet room and hold him down against him, kicking, spitting, biting, swearing, etc. And then, you know, kind of gently pull down his sweatpants or whatever and give him an injection of some super, uh, uh, super potent adult level sedative medication. And if he was out of his misery for the next 12 or 24 hours, we would call that a success story. Now, the truth is, I hated that immensely. Uh, it's, it's still going on in our hospitals around the country. And I just thought that, you know, they were missing the point and the communication was what really needed to be at the heart of mental health. Honestly, I made it my business then to go back to school and be a psychiatrist. And so for the next 13 years, um, I continued to be a childcare worker, moonlighting the whole time as I finished my degree and then went to college, went to, uh, went to Northwestern University as a childcare worker again, and then finished my degree and finished uh, a residency and then a fellowship in none other than child and adolescent psychiatry. So I could actually come out and do that. But in the meantime, psychiatry took a deep turn in 1987 when Prozac was introduced to the world. And Prozac really altered psychiatry as much as anything is altering the world now. You know, it was on the cover of Newsweek all by itself, Little Pill. It was on the cover of Time all by itself one week later. And it was because they thought that this drug was going to be the panacea for all the war, you know, for the whole world. And that it should be probably put into the water systems. Well, biological psychiatry had been born and chemical imbalances as an explanation for any kind of discomfort had also been born. So if you were uncomfortable with your life, you now had to bear the brunt of realizing that there was something wrong with you. This is a amazing twist in life. It's like blaming the log for burning in a fire. But nevertheless, it sold and it bought and it worked and it's still with us. This idea of biological psychiatry that if you're uncomfortable, there's something wrong with you. Uh, there are plenty of ways, I don't know about you, but there, 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 there's countless reasons to be uncomfortable in our world right now. 
and to take on that there's something wrong with us when we're uncomfortable and then accept that and realize that and then proceed with that is one of the more absurd things that mental health has driven down our throat over those years since 1987. So in those first several years, I found myself actually becoming a bona fide psychopharmacologist because the more and more I kept being a psychiatrist, the referrals came when people wanted medications. You know, if I ask most people what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, they'll say, oh, yeah, psychiatry, that's the one that can prescribe medicines. And that was the exact reason I went in the field so that I would not be able to describe med prescribe medicines, but I was being called on to do that. So I lived a massively duplicitous life while I was actually prescribing over 100,000 prescriptions and over 40,000 patients over the next 30 plus years. However, in 2006, this took another change. I had had enough and I started doing something very radical. I know it'll sound very radical to you and your, and your um, listeners, but in the end, you can start seeing that actually starting someone on medicine is more radical than I did. And that is I started stopping medicine. I started taking people off of medicine who were already low risk perhaps. And sure enough, not only did they get way better, but their diagnosis often disappeared. This led me to the conclusion that the medicines were often perpetuating or even causing the symptoms they were marketed to treat. And I kept going. I was initially very just uh, angry about it and violent about it. And I really didn't know what to do with it. And I wanted to scream it from the mountaintops. But over time, I eased it into my practice such that I began to medicate people much less and really fall back on that, which I already knew before I went into the field. And that was a communication connection conversation and create, you know, and uh, creativity are at the heart of all healing. I started to use that regularly. And then a few years later, I really created Welcome to Humanity. And Welcome to Humanity is a uh, opportunity. It's self-explanatory, but really looking at all of the experiences of humanity as being exquisite, whether they're painful or not, whether they're unresolved or not, whether, you know, it doesn't matter. Even the ones that are uncomfortable are very, very beautiful. And the idea of embracing the entire human experience became my way of helping people heal. Now, with that level of connection, I often find myself as the first person actually hearing someone or actually listening to someone and actually making a difference once we level the playing field like that. Someone who has known themselves to be ill because the world has told them they were ill isn't actually ill. It's actually someone who just learned themselves to be ill. Now, when you start looking at people just as the humans that they are, uh, all of a sudden things change. There's a new level of respect and resonance and, and um, uh, a connection that gets created that is where healing emanates from. So that's how I uh, eventually grew into being the undoctor, which is what you described in your introduction. So the undoctor is more someone who undiagnoses, unmedicates, and then undoctrinates people. And that's the word that I use. And then I've moved forward in the most recent years, really bringing forth that which is really critical, which is uh, being the a coach, a transformational coach, a restorative coach to help people absolutely come in light, come in uh, contact with their true voice, with their authentic message, which why they came here. Because if you don't share your voice, no one will ever hear you. And if you don't share your true voice, no one will ever know you. But in these urgent and very difficult times, uh, there's never been a greater draw to have people actually speak their true self. 
So who I am now is not only one who is much more aligned with my own true self than I was, you know, while I was being a doctor before I was being a healer. And now I'm a healer. Now I'm someone that actually brings this forth and brings that forth for other people as well. So my, you can see, I actually have gone full circle. And this is quite the same as when I went into the field. It just was a long ride to get here. That's all. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, a couple of things, so many things, but a couple of things that I want to focus on that I'm, um, and maybe I'll just put them out as a multi-layered question. You can stop me in the middle. We can kind of hit on some of them because so many of the pieces you're talking about, as I mentioned, have so much to do with the way we talk about and deal with addiction at Ignited, um, which is how primarily people come to us, right? People come to me saying, I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict. And I say, well, what does that mean? Um, and inevitably, that is a, a label that they got given to them at some point. They've held on to it and they now identify as it. And as they identify, and we know there are a lot of studies that show you, you take on the characteristics of the labels you identify with. So um, inevitably, we find out, as you mentioned, that there are aspects of their life that have been, I'll say dysfunctional, but what I mean by that is causing them pain, just causing them pain for long periods of time. And whatever it is they came to me presenting with is actually sort of the end solution that just has not been working out as well as they had hoped that it would. Um, and you mentioned biological psychiatry. I think we're leaving gradually. It's sort of like a very, it's like turning a, turning a massive cruiser, right? Like a ship. You just have to very, very slowly, it seems, turn it from an age where when you say biological, really where what it meant at the time to me was genetics and disease. Those were the two explanations to almost anything that happened. So for instance, with addiction, obviously the idea that addiction is a biological disease became a huge piece. And then everybody would come to me and saying, well, you know, I must have the, the addiction gene because I get addicted to things very easily. And both of those together became sort of an immutable fact that not only do you have a condition that is a medical condition, but also that you can't get rid of it because it's in your genes. So you're, you're now stuck with it forever. Um, and I come from, uh, you know, I got my PhD at UCLA, very science as in neuroscience, behavioral neuroscience, imaging, et cetera, genetics based. So that was drilled. The NIDA uh, medical model was very much drilled into me. And it took me years after I left school to recognize that there's something missing. And even though intuitively we knew most people who were given a diagnosis like that would sort of have to work themselves to fit the round peg in a square hole and, and kind of go, well, it doesn't all fit, but they, the doctors say that it's so, so it must be true. So the idea forever around biology, especially around mental health and addiction really bothered me because how are we going to help somebody where we're telling them on the front end, they actually can't be helped. This is something they're going to live with forever. And the second piece, really, I want to focus a little bit on labels and um, not just for prescriptions, but in terms of diagnosis, because that was one of the things that really drew me uh, when we first had an opportunity to connect. And that is, you know, I gave a TED talk um, eight years ago now or something like that. And I use this line in it because I've struggled with addiction myself. And I say, you know, my name is a D, but I'm not an addict. Um, and, and a lot of people took issue with that because they, they felt like I was putting down the recovery system. And to the point that I make right after that sentence is I'm a lot of things. I am a whole lot of different things some of which I described in that talk and some of which I just don't have time because you guys don't care. And it's not the point. It's I'm a unique individual. And I hear that a lot in what you're saying. So when was it 
that you started seeing that the diagnosis attached to the prescribed treatment was potentially causing more problems than it was actually solving. Mm -hmm. Great story. And, and thank you for your history. Um, yeah, I think it was really, I, I think I had known it the whole time, but when I first sort of came out with it was in 2006. And that was when I really started seeing initially that the, the medicines themselves weren't doing very much good and frequently were perpetuating or causing those symptoms that it was marketed to treat. But I started then realizing that it's not the medicine's fault under any circumstance. I mean, medicines are an inert substance. They're, you know, they're a bunch of powder in a plastic tube, or they're a, a little round circle of, you know, compressed something. Uh, they're not the problem, never have been the problem. And the companies that built them, they're not the problem either. The same reason we, you know, we don't blame people who make rat poison. Uh, you know, the, the idea isn't that it's the rat poison companies, the problem. The idea is, is that what it's, it's that we're willing to walk in to a psychiatrist office or a mental health office. We, many of us, and we want to know what's wrong with us because we feel uncomfortable or we feel different than the people that we see around us. So this idea of comparing our insides to other people's outsides is uh, one way to look at that. And if we can get somebody to confirm that there's something wrong with us, well, then we get to relinquish the responsibility for the parts of our life where we uh, might be shamed or blamed or uh, feel uh, regretful or resentful uh, of ourselves or others. And so you can tell your, if you can tell your spouse, that wasn't me, honey, that was my bipolar. Or if you can tell your parents that that's not me, that's my ADHD, uh, or that's my, you know, social phobia or my post-traumatic stress disorder, or that's my, you know, I don't know, uh, autistic spectrum disorder, or, you know, dysthymia or bipolar type two, or, all the many, 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 many diagnoses, then in fact, what we're doing in many of those cases is relinquishing the responsibility for our humanity, the parts of our humanity for which we make chronic ongoing errors and mistakes and actually hurt people sometimes intentionally, often inadvertently, and then feel terrible about it. But if I could blame you or anyone else for the mistakes that I make, I'm going to be in on that. I like that. The idea is that when I'm a bad person, that wasn't me, that was my diagnosis. Or when I'm doing something that I regret later, that wasn't me, that was my diagnosis, can be made very attractive in that setting. Now, with all of that said, to the listeners out there who know that they have a psychiatric diagnosis, I am not in any way uh, diminishing um, or under, under uh, emphasizing the experience of life that has those people being deeply uncomfortable. That by all means, I totally get it. And this isn't a matter of me saying there that you're that you're okay or or something like that. You are okay, by the way, but you're okay being as uncomfortable as you are in this crazy, challenging, difficult life. It is okay to be uncomfortable. That is comes with being a human being. And when we really look at ourselves as not being a diagnosis it opens up the possibility of starting anew from a fresh space of getting that each of us have difficult areas where we either have, where we're not prepared for what it is that we're experiencing. We're either being driven by our thoughts, by our emotions, by our feelings. We wish things were different. Uh, that's often, you know, what, what um, depression is or we're anxious about something we think is around the corner in the future. And we call that anxiety. 
Now, the real deal is, is that the diagnoses, when you take your, your diagnoses and you switch it from a Jaffe to whatever you want to call it, now you're no longer you. My diagnosis for you is a Jaffe. That's it. You're allowed to have that diagnosis because that's who you've been. But that's all that you get to be in my book. And the other thing I want to say is a sort of a disclaimer to the listeners who are maybe um, uh, bristling a little bit with this idea is if you have a psychiatric diagnosis and you are happy with that diagnosis and you have a treatment that's actually working for that diagnosis such that you don't think there's any need for improvement or adjustment in any way, you are totally happy with the way things are going, then by all means, please don't change anything. Like if you have found your way to some form of freedom or power through taking on a diagnosis and being treated effectively by the group of people who are around you attempting to give you some degree of relief, then by all means, especially if it's successful, please don't stop that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm speaking to the millions and in fact, hundreds of millions of people who aren't feeling that way. There are hundreds of millions of people who feel like their diagnosis isn't accurate and that actually diminishes their power in the world and that their treatment on the back end of receiving that diagnosis isn't helping at all and perhaps is only making things worse. And those people need to know that it is possible to start life over again, uh, restore one's life, restore you know, transformation in a life that has already been years or decades into a psychiatric diagnosis by taking on the possibility of, or taking on the, um, the, the notion that uh, what you're experiencing is human. And unfortunately, sometimes those medicines, which definitely alter uh, psychophysiology, uh, do cause often untoward symptoms, especially when you stop them. So yeah. when you stop them, you get a certain surge of symptoms the actual surge of the symptoms that the medications were intended to treat. And yeah, at so. that time, you're going to think that that's your condition coming back, but it's actually built into the medicine. And even if you never had that condition and took the medicine and stopped the medicine, you would then have the condition at that point. Yeah. So if you give yourself time to wash those things out of you, then in fact, you can, you can indeed walk away from your psychiatric diagnosis, starting a life over by giving yourself the compassion, acceptance, and forgiveness you deserve for just being you, because after all, you're welcome to humanity. Yeah. Um, I love that. Again, so much aligned in the way that we talk here at Ignited always. Let me present. So, you know, we talked about biology quite a bit, and there's definitely a school of psychology that um, has been pushing forward the concept of trauma and, and attachment and psychological functioning as part of it. The way we always talk about, again, I'll call it dysfunction, but what I really mean is discomfort um, in, in our conversation that ignited is that there are biological, but also psychological, also environmental and also spiritual factors in all of our lives that end up impacting that subjective experience that we end up having. So it's not that biology is never involved. There are biological dysregulations. It's just that they've gotten such a, um, they've been given such a lion's share of the explanation for so long that we just take it as a fact that if you're struggling between your ears, obviously we understand it physically, right? You break your arm, we understand that there's a, a physical acute issue and we can see it, but we've sort of just, um, gone all in on this concept that the same is true for any 
mental health dysfunction. So do you also look at those kind of four um, areas of life or do you have a different orientation about the things that might be causing that discomfort? Well, the, the cause is some form of dis, dysregulation. I don't know that I split it into those four areas all the time exactly. Uh, it seems to be reasonable, a way to uh, categorize. We are addicted, after all, to categorizing and, and organizing things. Um, the idea that there is a dysregulation that can be regulated homeostatically back to being um, uh, comfortable with the, what's going on in the here and now and really getting the notion that this is actually what life looks like when it's working. This is actually how it looks when it's working, just like this right here, right now. That's it. This is it. This is how it looks. This is what life looks like when it's working. And when you really get to that, then you see there's never been anything wrong, actually. This is just how life looks like when it's working. And there are, you know, our emotions, our wishes, our dreams, our desires, uh, our attachments are in the way of accepting that in our own self. For a second, you can fly by or drive by the notion that, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Any discomfort that I have is actually manufactured by how I look at the world being different than I wish it was. And uh, that is a that's a, a, that's kind of an audacious way to look at the world, since nobody I've ever known has actually been able to change the way the world is. I mean, you can wish all you want, but the world is always just being exactly as it is. And uh, I would and definitely I would definitely have some adjustments if I had uh, if I had full control over reality i suppose you would or you you may think you know better than the way reality is unfolding now and you have your you know it's a, you, you look like a pretty smart guy and you got that ucla phd going so yeah you probably have some something to say about how the world could be a better place i don't know that it's right it's just in my head the exactly. way the world should operate is slightly different than it does oftentimes exactly and and look there's so much things going on that are that are really very very disturbing and painful um and barbaric and, and you know impossible to understand and uh you know causing misery and uh, we would all probably vote that those things uh, would be better off if they weren't here but they're they are here so, yeah, I think it's a matter of, you know, when you look at what do you put into your system, um, you know, through your eyes, through your ears, through your mouth, through your nose, uh, through your feelings, through your thoughts, through your connections, what do, you, what do you put into your system? And you can detoxify and probably should as often as possible and surround yourself with things that are healthy to put into your system. Uh, it's we're bombarded all day in multiple senses in multiple ways with things that are not necessarily healthy or are insidiously toxic. And it's those things specifically, which we sometimes can't even identify as being toxic, because oftentimes they might feel good to see that or to hear that or to eat that. And because it feels good, we think that it is good. So that's one way to help the dysregulation and, and, you know, whether or not you should have a little bit of this or a little more of that or a little less of that, it's all theory. And in the end, it's all theory and it may be well-rooted theory, but it's also likely to change in the next 20 or 50 years because that's what theories do. So there's no real truth uh, to any of that either. All the, you know, idea that uh, you should do a little more than this. Now, the truth is nutrition is important what we put into our mouth and what, you know, becomes us. So that's important. The other thing is, uh, you know, what, like finding mindfulness, finding a way to uh, actually create 
uh, uh, some degree of steadiness in our mind is also generally important. And I invite all of us to really take a look at that. Uh, really take a look at, you know, steadying ourselves, silencing ourselves, stilling ourselves, and then being careful what we take into our system through our senses. If you've been going to couples therapy for years, but feel like nothing has changed and you and your partner are still fighting a lot, or you're just not able to communicate effectively, if you're uncomfortable with intimacy, or you're just not having enough of it, enough sex, enough connection, or you feel like you're growing, or maybe you have grown in different directions, and you're just sitting around going, when's the good stuff, right? Like, when do we get happy again? We are so excited to let you know that we're offering our first free virtual workshop where we're going to give you a shortcut to getting that relationship that you want to being able to communicate to understanding each other in a way that you can grow back together, mend some of those wounds and learn how to communicate effectively and fight less. If you want, just join us at the first time we've done one of these free workshops. All you got to do is go to ignited.com forward slash events. That's I-G-N-T-D.com forward slash events to learn more. See you on the third. You know, the act for so many of us of first of all, getting comfortable with reality is a huge undertaking by itself, right? Especially, and I think this is a little bit of what you were alluding to on the front end, when the messaging around us, and this is, I believe, getting worse and worse and worse, is that everybody else is actually doing really, really well, and that their life is somehow perfect, or at least much, much better than ours. And so there could be this comparison. And I was wondering, you know, there's a, a, cognitive bias in psychology that's called the fundamental attribution error that I refer to quite a bit. And it has to do just with when we look at our own actions, you know, we see the world through our own eyes. So while it's true that none of us are the center of the universe, we are the center of our own subjective universe, right? We look around and in a very literal sense, the world revolves around us because we see out from ourselves. Um, but maybe in a more nuanced way, I know why I take on my actions, right? I know the reasoning behind why I do things. And I understand them in a much more, much more complex way than I understand why anybody else does anything, because I don't know what's going on in your head. Uh, you seem to be very good at explaining it and, and, and verbalizing and using your voice, for instance, but not everybody's that great at it. And other people have a lot of shame and, and um, you know, kind of negative associations with even being truthful and honest about what's going on in their head because of judgment in the past. And so the fundamental, the fundamental attribution error says, well, look, when you look at other people's actions, you attribute their personality, who they are, to that action. But when you look at yourself, you have a very easy time attributing your circumstances to it. So the example I always give, I might have given this multiple times on this podcast. So excuse me, listeners, if that is true, let's say this actually just happened. My mom had a stroke uh, on the way to coming to visit us on the plane. And so she was here for an hour, said, hey, don't. I don't want to alarm you, but I looked in the mirror and on the plane and my, the left side of my face is drooping and my lip is, um, I'm, I'm having some slurred speech. And I said, oh, and I'm not a physician. So I just made sure that I know what I'm talking about, but it became very clear. That's a stroke and called a physician. He said, get, you know, get in the car and drive. So if something like that is happening, I may be driving fast. I may be trying to get through yellow lights faster because I'm trying to get my mom to the hospital and save her life potentially. And when I do that, I understand why I'm driving slightly erratically or maybe very erratically. 
But if I'm driving comfortably listening to music and I'm having a good, comfortable day and somebody cuts me off in traffic or is driving erratically around me, we all have the same response. We look at them and say, oh, what an asshole. And the difference there is in the how easy it is for us to understand our own actions versus understand the actions of others. But I've always noted that something else because of labels, because of diagnoses happens in mental health. And that is once somebody applies a label to you that has to do with your functioning, it is, you're right. It's all, all of a sudden as if we just decide, oh, well, this is why I do things. I do things because of this diagnosis. And all of a sudden, so many, there could be so much evidence that you end up collecting in your own life as to why this diagnosis is correct, even if those symptoms were not there ahead of time. And so how do you think, because you already said it, we, our brains want to categorize things, right? We keep putting things in boxes. That's, we do that all the time. What in all your writing and all your work, right? Decades and decades of experience as you're trying to take people out of that. I know how we do that at Ignited around addiction in particular, I'll say, but how do you help somebody work through who's been given a bipolar two, bipolar one, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, uh, a personality disorder. They've been given this label for decades sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so they operate, if you ask them, who are you? They, they might literally say, well, you know, my name plus I am bipolar. How do you do the work of gradually, essentially taking the glasses off, changing the lenses they wear to see themselves and the people around them? Well, that's a, it's, a, it's like asking an artist, which brush do you pick up first? I, I, I don't know exactly. Uh, you know, I don't have like a, a bona fide technique for start here and then do that. And, you know, like a paint by numbers thing. I think the first place to start is to look across at that other person and have the acceptance, forgiveness and compassion for all that they become, as well as having acceptance, forgiveness and compassion for yourself. Uh, thinking that you have, again, the audacity to, uh, agree that there's something wrong mentally with another person. Uh, since we don't know what normal behavior really is or normal thinking really is, it is does take a, a significant amount of audacity to believe that some people aren't thinking right or aren't thinking or acting right. Even though, again, there's some people on the extremes where you could say, yeah, well, what about this guy? He's wrong. What about that guy? He's terrible. Yeah, I understand that. But what, what we're really looking at is leveling the playing field inside of our listening, actually getting that the patient or our friend or our sister or whoever it is that we are uh, commiserating with or attempting to connect with um, is going to do better off if we see them way beyond anything called a diagnosis, which is a frankly, a it's a temporary thing. It's, 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 it's coming through and probably going away. Uh, you know, these diagnoses are less than 10 or 20 or 30 years old. Most of you have one of them. And that's because they didn't exist before they existed. And frankly, they'll be, uh, they'll be gone before too long when they get upgraded to something else that captures people's uh, imagination. Right. Like, for instance, by the way, just as an example, like homosexuality was a mental health disorder, diagnosed, diagnosable mental health disorder. So was hysteria for women, right? There are diagnoses that now we understand were very culturally based and just sat in the zeitgeist in the in the environmental context of the time. And now if for most people listening, if you said to somebody, well, you know, that person, they're mentally ill, they're, they have homosexuality, most people would either laugh you out the room or at least look at you sideways. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think that uh, I, I think at this point, it's, it's, um, it's, you know, those are the two, those are two or three that people often talk about. But the truth is, every one of these diagnoses are kind of arbitrary. They, they're based on the notion that we understand what no, there's nowhere in the DSM four where it says, or the DSM five where it says what normal is. 
And so if we don't know what normal is, I don't know how we get off saying that what abnormal is when we all could just be wrong. <laughs> I mean, we, I, you know, how we look at the world is how we look at the world. And, and so when we start really just shaking the tree a little bit, you know, loosening the jar a little bit, giving people the idea that there might be um, other ways to look at reality and that the way that, you know, I was doing something called global madness for a while, where I was expecting to go around the world and really see how uh, psychiatric so-called symptoms were being treated in various culturally diverse areas of our planet. And the idea would be that some of these people get, you know, get promoted to shaman or some of these people become uh, leaders in the community with the same symptoms that put you in a hospital here in the United States. Uh, or, or get you uh, forced medication or, you know, probation. Um, and that's because there's nothing inherently ill, like a broken arm, you said, it's a broken arm. It's a broken arm if it's in Tanzania. It's a broken arm if it's in Arkansas. It's a broken arm if you're in, you know, if you're in China, if you're four years old, if you're 45 years old, it's all the same. Uh, that's not true with mental health at all. And so when you start with just forgetting all of that and getting that your only diagnosis is a Djaffe and that's it. And with, that's how I'm going to treat you. And that's how I expect to be treated. And we have a linear relationship as two humans. It's so different to have just a linear relationship of two humans that just in and of that self creates that connection and healing launches from that very moment. I love it. Oof. <laughs> you know, we're talking on one side about we can't change the reality we're in. But in, in another way, the conversation we're having is about trying to change the reality that we're in, right? Which is the reality of falling on these seemingly convenient, I, in the TEDx that I, I gave, I literally say this, you know, they're like shortcuts to humanity because we think we're doing people a service by explaining what's going on with them. But what we're really doing is we're now, and I, I literally said the exact same thing you just mentioned, you know, we're no longer talking to the person, we're talking to the diagnosis. And, um, and again, I've been very siloed trying to do this work in addiction. When I started talking about this eight, nine, 10 years ago, the idea that it's a problem to call somebody an alcoholic and addict seemed antithetical, like it was blasphemous in my industry. Now there's research, a ton of research that says using the term addict, alcoholic, junkie, calling somebody's urine clean or dirty, all those kinds of terms we just took completely for granted in the addiction space for so long are problematic. Problematic in terms of individual self-esteem, experience of shame, the stigma against them, but also in a very, you know, those are kind of more um, ephemeral kind of versions of the harm. It's hard to quantify that, but people are less likely to engage in help. They're less likely to remain and, and engage in that help in, in terms of uh, in long-term kind of context. And they're, they're less likely to, to experience what we call success. And again, as you mentioned, you know, what, what success even means sometimes can be uh, problematic. What have you noticed now having done this work for a while with, uh, let's just use successful patient cases, right? Nobody, nobody bats a thousand, but let's just use some successful patient cases and some stories of people where they came in seemingly intractable, seemingly having these problems that have been chasing them for decades and through this reorientation got to experience and live a different life. Well, at this point, I no longer practice conventional psychiatry, but at the time in 2006 and 2007, I had a couple thousand patients that would call me their doctor, you know, outpatients and inpatients, uh, more than a few thousand. And 
I began to do this on a more uh, general basis. And, you know, the numbers of people who no longer needed mental health started to grow. I mean, this is, these are people who don't need mental health treatment, except to perpetuate the conditions that they're going there to treat. That's the whole point of going back to the doctor each and every month is to make sure that you can get a confirmation of the diagnosis you have, and then a level of medication that sometimes actually perpetuates those symptoms. Some people have really just walked away with, there, there, there are many, many, many examples of people who no longer felt that they had a diagnosis and then just went on with their world. Now, the other thing is, is that the people I see now are people who are either interested in not entering the conventional psychiatric complex or people who have already learned that it's time to come out. And I, I don't treat everyone. This is a, it's a complex issue because I think you've kind of alluded to it, but mm, there are the system is built around having an identified patient frequently. That's what they call it. And the idea being that if there's something wrong with my sister, we can all blame my sister for being the problem in the family or something like that. So if my sister was to naturally get well individually, this would disrupt the system and the system would attack back wanting my sister to stay ill. So there's so many things about this idea of what, what purpose illness serves. And it's a matter back, back again to artistry and really releasing people from clenched fist of diagnoses. It takes also having them work with the people around them to adjust to their new ex new access to their own being. Yeah, so true. I'll, I'll use a story. I want to hear what you think about this one. For instance, um, a woman who, who we worked with who was drinking, you know, on the order of two bottles of wine a night and had been doing that so for a long time. And so when that came out, obviously, she's an alcoholic, right? That's the term everybody in her life gave her. And so she was trying all the different things that alcoholics should do to get better. And um, she ended up finding us through some other channels and, and after work together for, I think it took, it took like three to four months to get to the level I'm about to describe, but she was down to drinking three to six drinks a week instead of essentially what was 13 to 14 bottles a week. And in celebration, speaking of systems, she went to her therapist and said, hey, you know, I just realized I've been tracking and I just realized I'm down to drinking three to six drinks a week. And she was coming in full celebration mode. And his first response was, you know, I'm really worried that we shouldn't be drinking at all. And she was really taken aback and immediately put back in that alcoholic seat of what's wrong with you? How dare you even think of drinking as if that's okay mm -hmm. for you to be quote unquote normal, as you mentioned. And she came to a group, she was processing this in a group. And I said, I just did a quick uh, back of the napkin math. And I said, you know, I'll call her P, you know, P, um, Given what you're telling me, your drinking was like when you started it, now three to four months later, you've had about a 98, 99% reduction in your drinking. So even if that was the symptom, I think we're, we, you and I agree, that's at best a symptom of the problem. That's not the underlying problem. But even if it was just a symptom, you now have a 99% reduction in symptoms, which if what we're looking at is those symptoms for resolution should by all means be a celebration, right? I've gone to school. Sure. I remember grades, 99 is pretty close to 100. It's as close yeah. to perfect as you can get without getting 100. It took us, me, the community, probably a week of assuring her that this is progress, even though not everybody sees it as progress, that it is progress. The system itself, the, the environment, the social, physical, cultural environment you live within, and you mentioned this with the shamans, 
and the mental health struggles. Those systems are powerful. And they're powerful because that's where we find meaning. That's where we find context. That's how we even know who a D Jaffe is or, you know, Dr. Fred Moss. It's like, that's, that's what gives us the context, right? Even the title, right? When I got a PhD, the only reason the PhD means something to certain people is because they have an association with, with what that is, uh, what that tells them about me. So that, you know, it, it permeates everything. And I'll be honest, it's a struggle I have, even in my personal life, right, where People are so quick to drop a label here and there as if it means nothing, not recognizing that it's, it's like as if somebody just put the mark of Cain on your forehead in a way. And but they do it so offhand, I feel like we've gotten so comfortable with these labels. So you don't practice typical psychiatry anymore. And the people who come to you are open to this way of mm -hmm. thinking, I'll say. But do you see a path out of this for the industry as a whole? Is there a future in which... We move away from, you know, here are the 150 diagnostic labels we have. Which one applies to you? Yeah, I, uh, I, not anytime soon. You know, let's go one step at a time. We just got to find the people who are ready to come out of the system. The system serves so many people. Uh, you know, it serves not only the clients, but it serves doctors and insurance companies, the hospital. You know, it serves the pharmaceutical companies and it serves families and friends and it serves everyone individually in such a positive way, including the patient who's getting worse as a function of the system. Because they, like I said, you know, this patient then gets to relinquish responsibility for their life. So it's actually a beautifully designed system, kind of diabolical in nature, but overall, uh, I don't see it going away very fast uh, just because we think it should. It, it has the greatest profit margin of any industry in the world. Mm. Uh, more than most defenses of most countries, you know, the profit margin in psychopharmacology is so extraordinary. And so um, I don't, I don't see it. I, you know, I wish I could <laughs> say not, I was going to go away. You're not falling on the hopeful side of things. I, I love that. I love the honesty. I love the honesty. Um, if somebody listening right now is open to this way of thinking, if they're listening to this podcast, they probably are. How do they learn more about your work? How do they connect with you? What's, what's the best path? Yeah, the best path, if you want to learn a little bit more, really, I'm working so hard these days to help people find their true voice and really get as authentic as I am getting now. Uh, given that I was living so uh, du duplicitously, pretentiously for so long by, you know, prescribing medicines and in other areas of my life as well, and really working to line up myself and to realign myself so that I can bring my true message and actually be heard. And I'm helping others do that. So there's a book I wrote recently called Find Your True Voice called findyourtruevoicebook.com is where I would ask your listeners to sign in, findyourtruevoicebook.com. And I'll send them uh, a book and uh, shipping is on me as well in the United States. And I'll send them that book and we can um, uh, go from there. An easier way, if you don't want to read the book, or if you just want to set up a, a call with me to see how I could be, how we might be able to work or play together, that would be by uh, contacting me on my uh, email, which is drfred at welcometohumanity.net or going to my website, which is uh, in some construction called welcometohumanity.net. Or you could also go to any of my social media sites. Uh, my handle is generally Dr. Fred Moss and Instagram and Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. But in reality, if you really just wanna, wanna talk and kick it with me, uh, the best way to do it is to come with my email. And definitely I would suggest buy uh, or ask for my book, get a free copy of my book at, at findyourtruevoice.com. Findyourtruevoicebook.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Fred, for the work that you do. I know, um, I know there aren't a ton of voices like you in the psychiatry field. And so always really, really great to connect. And, you know, 
again, I'm going to stay on the hopeful side of things and hope that more and more professionals come to this side as well, which will open up more and more possibility for the patients who are interested and eventually will lead at least I'll, I'll call it to a, a broadly enough available set of options where if you feel like you're not being served by these diagnoses, if you feel like things are just not jiving and you're trying to fit, fit yourself into a mold that you've been uh, given over and over and over, or as you mentioned, if you're just not interested in fitting into that mold at all and you're not engaging and getting help, hopefully people, more and more people will be reaching out that way. I hope so too. That'd be great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you everybody for listening. Go check out the book. I mean, he's giving it away for free for crying out loud. You should just get it. You know us. We're all about this uh, label-free, diagnosis-free sort of way of living. So let's keep supporting everybody who does that work. Thank you so much. And we will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Ignited Heroes Recovery Podcast. I really hope you found the information here useful and that we'll see you back here next week. And look, I want to make sure that this podcast is the most useful it can be for you. So please let me know by emailing info at ignited.com if there are any specific topics or questions you'd like to have addressed. As usual, if you like this episode, I would love for you to leave us a five-star review and rating. Thanks and see you next week.